hopefully I can see my notes. They didn't make it to typed today, so I'm trying to read my own chicken scratch. That's kind of a sketchy proposition. For Samuel 7, last week we went through verse 1, so I'm just going to pick up, start reading in verse 2. If you want to stand, you can. For Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and he also judged, there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. You can be seated. The world is longing for someone to lead, is longing for some kind of a heroic deliverer. And we see that in all kinds of places in our society. We see that in superhero movies. You know, I mean, if you if you want your movie to make a lot of money, put a comic book hero on the front like that. That make that your lead character and that your money, your movie is going to make money. We see it in sports with teams paying gobs and gobs of money for any kind of premier athlete. You know, I mean, if maybe if you're the Vikings, you would settle for like a okay quarterback, <laughs> but everybody else wants a really good quarterback. Um, it, you see it with, you know, basketball teams will get wrapped, built around a great player. The people are looking for a hero, and we see it even in politics. And, you know, President Obama had like a group of people who almost worshipped 
the way he wanted to do things. And you see that now with President Trump, where there's a segment of people who just really, really want to believe in him no matter what. And, you know, it, it, we just we fix our hopes on individuals in all areas of our life. We're hardwired to look for someone to save us. Every single one of us is. And it goes all the way back to, to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, where God promises that from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the seed of the serpent. And it's interesting, I've been listening to this uh, podcast where they're they're just walking through the Bible. And so they're they're only going through Genesis so far. They've only been through like Genesis 15 or 20. But even in those chapters, how often you just see this hope of, well, maybe this is going to be the one who is the, the one who crushes the seed of the serpent. Maybe this is the seed of the woman who's going to crush the seed of the snake. And this hope is built throughout our, our humanity. And in Israel's history, when you get to the book of Judges, you start to see a series of these people who are like these miniature versions of heroes. And they're called the Judges. That they're people who are brought in and God for a time, when the, when the people repent, he'll send them a judge who will deliver them. And they'll crush their enemies and there will be peace in Israel for 20 years or for 40 years. And the last of these judges that we meet is the man after whom this book is named, Samuel. He's the last of these, these hero judges. We think of others in the past, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, and Barak. There, there are these great judges who deliver Israel, and the last one of them is Samuel. Now, he had vanished from the last three chapters, right? Chapters 4, 5, and 6, Samuel is basically gone. Now, the, the focus has been on the Ark of the Covenant. And now, so if you remember at the end of chapter 6, the Ark has come back. God has just brought the Ark back on a cart, these two milk cows that that have had their calves shut up, they just walk straight into Israel, bring the Ark of the Covenant back to where it belongs. And the men of Beth Shemesh, they rejoice, they sacrifice the cows. But then what happens? They gaze at the Ark. God kills at least 70 of them. And and they say, whoa, who can stand before God? Hey, guys in the next town, Come get this thing and get it away from here. And it's like they shove the ark of God into a corner, and for 20 years, they just go back to what they were doing, worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth are the male and female fertility gods uh, of the Canaanites. And and so worshiping them, largely they're, they're, they're the fertility gods uh, and the agriculture gods. And so essentially... What worship consisted of was, uh, I think one Bible dictionary called it various lewd rites. But you, you essentially, you went and you had sex with the, the cult prostitutes there at the shrines or, or with the priestess or the prophetess or the prophet of, of this God. And that's how you worship to make sure your crops would grow. And, and while we can look at that and say, wow, that's horrible, that's actually on a human level, a very appealing form of worship. What better way to make sure your crops get to grow than go worship with the, the cult prostitute? But then, after that time, 
verse 3, and Samuel. So think back to the last thing we heard about Samuel was at the tail end of chapter 3, where his word is being established in all Israel, where from Dan to Beersheba, they realize that Samuel is a prophet. Samuel is someone who is speaking from God. And, and after this period of 20 years, this is probably the time when Samuel's been coming into ministry and starting to speak, and people are starting to realize, wow, this guy speaks from God. And after 20 years, it's as if they're all starting to realize, maybe we should stop doing what we're doing that isn't working and start listening to Samuel and thus listen to God. And Samuel, verse 3, said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. I, I should note here, in, in the bulletin, the title of this sermon is True Repentance. Sometimes I give the title to Kelly before I actually know what the real title of the sermon is. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about repentance, but I think the theme of this chapter actually is the goodness of having God as your king. The goodness of having God as your king. And we're going to see that, a contrast to that next week in chapter 8. Um, but, but having God as your king, and so here our first point, is having God as your king starts with repentance. We're going to see that in verses 3 through 6. Samuel, we just read, he tells them to put away the other gods and to serve only the Lord. And then Israel obeys in verse 4. They put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They serve the Lord only. Having God as your king starts with returning to him, coming to him with a whole heart. Having God as king requires repentance. God always is, everywhere is the king, right? As God, he's the ruler over the universe. But for him to be your king in the sense that you can delight in him being your king and you can rejoice that he's ruling instead of being terrified of that, you have to turn and willingly bow the knee to him. You have to bow your knee to him. Repentance, just what that word means in the Bible, is is turning. It's a turning of your mind. It's a changing of your mind to agree with God about something. And repentance means agreeing with God about your sin. Some people, when you say that you have to repent to be saved, the, there will be like a, a resistance to that because, well, you're adding to faith. The New Testament says by faith we're saved, not, not through works, and repentance is a work. But repentance in the scriptures isn't a work. It leads to a changed life. It leads to works. But repentance itself is a change of mind that is essentially the, the other side of the coin of faith. Uh, you have to agree with God about your sin and trust in God, faith, that he's willing to forgive your sin because of what Jesus has done. Like Repentance and faith are, you can distinguish what they are, but they can't ever be separated. You can't trust God. You can't have faith in God without repenting without agreeing with him that you need to be saved. And so he's, he's telling them to, to repent, to turn around, to give God their whole heart. When we turn away from what we've trusted before and turn to God, he is glad to forgive us. This can be hard, verse 4, like we talked about. They're serving Baal and Ashtaroth, so... so their flesh doesn't want 
most likely to give up this form of worship. And it's very hard for us sometimes to give up the things that we are clinging to and worshiping. And we probably don't have like a pillar in our house that we go and we worship. But we all have gods. We all have idols of our heart. That the things that we look to for that, that we trust, that we hope in, that, that we put our dependence on, that we think are gods. And and letting those go and trusting the God of Scripture can be really, really hard to do. But it's always worth it. It's always worth it. Verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now this symbol of scooping up the water and pouring it out, I don't think there's any consensus on what it means. <laughs> um, I, I think every single commentary I read gave a different answer. And they were, most of them, pretty sure that their answer was right, <laughs> but they're all different. Um, what's obvious is that it is a symbol of their repentance. We don't know exactly what it's symbolizing, but it's a symbol of their repentance. Um, I think there's, whether it's, it's an, exactly an analogy or not, for us today, the, the, the water symbol that's tied to belief is baptism. And and again, like this, God's not forgiving them because they scooped some water up and dumped it out. They scooped some water up and dumped it out to symbolize their repentance. And, And as believers in the New Testament age, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are then baptized into him to symbolize our connection to his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not baptism that saves us in any sense. It's not a magical trick that makes God like us now, but but it's to symbolize our identification with him, our turning from our sin and to him. It's why we believe uh, in, in believer's baptism. A baby can't make that decision to, to trust in God and be identified with him. Um, the second thing we see, having God as your king starts with repentance. It starts with agreeing with God that you need to be saved and, and then putting away what was your former life? So for these guys, it was putting away the gods of the Canaanites. For us, it, it could be any number of things, but at root, it, it it involves giving up our own pride as our source of salvation. We think we can save ourselves, and we have to realize we cannot. Turning to God brings salvation, though. It starts with repentance, but it brings salvation. And we see that in verses 7 through 11. The, the Philistines actually misinterpret what's happening here. As the people gather at Mizpah to, to repent, to turn back to God, and Samuel's preaching to them. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The Philistines see the people gather, and they assume, well, they must be gathering for war. They must be coming to attack us. And so we're going to attack them first. And and the Israelites figure this out, and they're afraid. And again, in human terms, 
They should be terrified. What happened last time? Chapter 4, verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And then you fast forward in that same passage, they draw up in line of battle again, and the Philistines kill 30,000 of them. The Israelites, it makes sense that, that they're afraid right here. <laughs> they should be terrified because the Philistines creamed them 20 years ago when they lined up before. And, and now it seems like it's going to happen again. But unlike that time before, so, so Israel gets beat in that first battle in chapter 4, and they go then and they grab the Ark of God and they say, okay, we've got our trinket here, we've got our good luck charm, we're going to bring God into battle with us and he'll have to fight. Here, instead of thinking they can force God into fighting for them, they can twist his arm so that, that he has to come through for them. Here instead, they do something different. Verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The people here understand that they can't make God save them, but the only hope they have is if God saves them. And so they ask for it humbly. Samuel, do not cease to cry out for us. It made me think of Jonah 2.9, which I've heard one person call the gospel in five words, and it's salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah there in chapter 2, he's sitting in the belly of the fish, and he just says salvation is of the Lord. He knows he has no other hope other than for God to intervene and to save him. And God does. God does. Samuel realizes, it seems, that there's also a more important need than, than just their salvation from the Philistines here. Because he goes and he takes a lamb, a whole lamb, and offers it as a whole burnt offering, which in Leviticus, that offering is meant to cover sin. It, it's an atonement offering. And, and so Samuel is taking this lamb and he he, he knows that God is about to deliver the people in an earthly sense. We, we know as we read through the story that the Philistines are going to be put to flight. But Samuel comes to God with prayer and a whole burnt offering to, to cover the sins of the people. I just want to look at Le- Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. It's talking about whole offerings here. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The, an atonement is, is a, it's a covering. It's something that covers the sins of the people. And I, I wonder as you think about your life, what do you think you need to be delivered from? What, what do you feel the need to be delivered from? A, a situation or a condition or a relationship? We should take it to the Lord in prayer. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But what we should also realize is that our biggest problem, the biggest thing we need delivered from is the judgment of God against our sins. That 
We might have a lot of real problems in our life, but there is no problem that is bigger than the fact that the holy God of the universe is angry with sin and we are sinners. But Hebrews chapter 9 has good news for sinners. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But, but in contrast to those temporary offerings in the past, the, the bulls and the goats and the whole lambs here in, verse, uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, when Christ came and he paid for sin, he did it once for all. Mm-hmm. And and his, his atonement did not just cover the sins of his people, of those who trusted in him. It actually removed their sins. God, God, God in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he has given our sin to Christ and clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the, the biggest deliverance each of us needs is to be saved from our sin. And if we are trusting in Christ, we are totally saved. Our, our sin deserves judgment, but Jesus took that judgment. He took that death and he gave us life. He delivers us from wrath and judgment. Jesus saves his people. Or, it's not revealed as Jesus yet, but God saves the people of Israel here in verses 10 and 11. Samuel As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So the Philistines who are trembling in fear, and the Philistines are coming to attack them and... It doesn't say that they really had any kind of a plan to to protect themselves. They didn't know what they were going to do, but God thunders in such a way that that it throws the people into confusion. The Philistines take off running. And if you look back at the prayer of Hannah, Samuel's mother, in chapter 2, verse 10, says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. God thundered here and terrified the Philistines and protected the people of Israel supernaturally. They didn't have a way to protect themselves against a superior force, but God protected them. He saved them. The the third thing we see, so having God as your king, it starts with repentance. And having God as your king brings salvation. Having God as your king also brings peace. Beginning in verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken away from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. 
and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel here, he sets up uh, an Ebenezer stone, verse 12. Ebenezer means stone of help, stone of help. He sets it up for them to remember what God has done. And when he says, thus far the Lord has helped us, I don't think he's meaning to imply that God's going to stop helping them there. But, but they need to remember that to this point, all the good things that have happened have happened because God has been their help. They, they don't have anything good that's come apart from God helping them. So often, so often, our crises of faith, we see this in the life of Israel, and I think we see it in our own lives. Our crises of faith come when we simply forget. We stop remembering what God has done in the past. When we stop remembering the past faithfulness of God, we quit trusting him for the future. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Other translations say it's a safeguard or it's a protection for you. Just to, to remind these believers, he's writing the same things over and over. Trust Jesus. Jesus alone saves. Have joy in Jesus. And, and here, Samuel is setting up a, a, a stone to help the people remember, here in this place, God delivered you. God thundered from heaven. God protected you from the Philistines. Quit trusting yourselves. Quit turning to those idols of stone and of wood that cannot save you, that cannot help you. God alone can help you. I had a long conversation with someone I'm pretty close to earlier this year where, where they were expressing to me that they felt abandoned by God and abandoned by the church and and I that's not to say like churches full of human beings like they do fail us sometimes right and, and as human beings we do sometimes feel distant from God there's no question about that read the Psalms the psalmists often felt distant from God but they had allowed that feeling to become their definition of truth and I just sat there and started recounting all of the things God had done in, in the past in this person's life to from, from a miraculous healing of one of their children to, to the way God had provided financially time and again and, and the way that often he had used the church to do that. Like the people of God had been the hands and feet of Jesus, as it were. But there was just no remembrance no remembrance of what God had done. And I think we all have that temptation. Every time we sin, as a believer, we're choosing to forget how good God has been to us and instead think we're going to get good somewhere else. And when the people of Israel do that, we see all through the book, it's just the continual, they forget that God's better than everybody else, and they sin and things go horribly for them. And when they turn to him in repentance, he's still good to them. 
God brought the people of Israel peace here. He subdued the Philistines to their west here. They, they get back all of the land that the Philistines had taken from them. The Amorites are a people to the east of them that, that had land across the Jordan River and even some on the same side as the Jordan as, as, the, as the Israelites. And God had given them peace with the Amorites. One phrase that's not used here, but I think characterizes uh, this, this paragraph it's used frequently in the Old Testament, in Joshua multiple times, in Judges several times, in 1 Kings, is that the people of Israel had peace on every side. And I think that describes this situation. The people had turned to the Lord, and he gave them rest from their enemies. Now the question for us as, as believers on this side of the cross, are we promised that kind of peace on every side when we turn to the Lord? Because the people of Israel were promised that when they were following God, they would be given peace on every side. God, that's part of what God had told them in, in the law. And it's not quite the same for us. But I would argue that what we're promised, while it's not the same as that, is even better. I just want to look at a few verses in John. Hopefully our study of John isn't so far in the past that this is all a distant memory. John 15 beginning in verse 18. Jesus is saying to his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Down in chapter 16, verses 5 through 11. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you to the, tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then down in verse 33 of that same chapter. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we're not the nation state of God like Israel was. We're, we're following him does not mean we will have peace from all of our earthly enemies. In fact, Jesus says, they've, they've persecuted and hated me, and if you're following me rightly, it's actually going to go badly for you in an earthly sense a lot of times. There will be people who hate you and dislike you and, and aren't impressed by the fact that you're trying to be faithful to Christ. But as the new covenant people of God, we have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave you guys and you're upset about that, but it's going to be even better for you because I will be closer to you when I'm gone than I am when I'm here because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is going to come and live inside of you. And that will be even better than having peace out there is having peace in here. Because God has come to dwell within you. 
because of the Spirit's presence, we can have peace in Christ. Verse 33 of 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. No matter the circumstance, having Jesus as your king means you can have eternal peace with Almighty God. And that is better than any earthly peace that we can have in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is happy to welcome repentant sinners to you. Lord, none of us comes to you having earned your grace. None of us can clean up our lives and then come to you. We, we don't have that power. But just like the people of Israel who, who for so long, so long had, had chased after other gods... When they turn to you, you welcome them with open arms. And if we will turn to you, Father, you welcome us with your loving arms. And we thank you that when we turn to you, you give us salvation. You save us from our sins because Christ paid for them all on the tree. And you give us the Holy Spirit who gives a peace that passes understanding. Uh, a peace within no matter what's happening around us in the world. Lord, what more could we need? What, what could we ask for more than this? You are a gracious God, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.